All right. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about a little bit was uh, surely on, if you're on social media or if you've been watching the news or whatever, there's a, a uh, worship service that started maybe last Wednesday at Asbury University in Kentucky, and um, they just kind of kept going, and it's just kind of been an ongoing um, revival or awakening or whatever you want to call that. It's been interesting. I know I've shared in here before that at the last one of these that really happened was in 1995, and it started actually at my college at Howard Payne. And that was uh, one of the only, I think, only times there's been a revival like that that's occurred at a, at a Southern Baptist institution. And you can look at that on the internet and read about what happened there in 95, but I was actually there, I was actually in the room and it's interesting, you'll see a lot of different comments about the Asbury Revival. There'll be people that are critical of it, people that are questioning it. And it, I've told Spencer, you know, it was interesting, the night after the Holy Spirit really moved at our college campus, it was an evening service that wound up lasting for hours and hours. And that was back before the time where there was social media. No one even took a picture of it. No, we didn't walk around with cameras back in those days. You, know, you had to remember to take your camera places Nobody even snapped a picture of what it looked like in the room. And I, I can tell you about it and, and um, try to put it into words, but it was just one of those very unusual ways that God moved right in the middle of a normal service. It was just, everything was normal. And then it was just extraordinary for several hours of prayer, repentance, Bible reading, and we were just broken before God as college students. And um, the next day, though, people were questioning and critical, even people on campus, even people that were in the room were questioning what had happened. Uh, yet, 30 years later, you can go and look and see so many lives that, were, that are changed. I mean, I mean I'm... I'm up here. I, 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 I just look at the way God's moved in my life since that, since, not just because of that night, but that was a very special night. I mean, it was, there's a lot of factors that, that lead into our sanctification, spiritual growth. It's not all about one extraordinary moment, but I thank God for giving me that moment. And I realize how rare that is for there to actually be a revival where the Spirit moves. Uh, it's rare because we don't, ask for it. It's rare because we don't seek it. And um, I don't, I, I know, I, I can say when I try to even talk about it, I can't really even talk about it, but it was remarkable. But, but, but let me give you a, a definition of revival that I think is helpful that uh, Ray Ortland came up with. Revival is when God uses the ordinary things that we do as a church and, and then he uses them in an extraordinary way. Okay, so what happens at a revival is the same stuff that happens at church. People pray, people read the Bible, people sing, people repent, okay? People share their testimony, people make relationships, people hold each other accountable. These are the things that happen at church. And when God sends us an un, uh, unusual a gift of a spirit in an unusual way, uh, it's something to really be grateful for. And then in the times between those special, uh, those special moments, we just remain faithful. And so we show up here every day, and we, or every Sunday, and we worship together, 
we live every day for Jesus Christ, and we ask him, please, Father, uh, would you send revival to our land? Would you send revival to our church? Would you send revival to our, our nation, that this nation and this state and this community will turn to you and acknowledge that you are the Lord? And so we want that, we pray for that, but every day we live with Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's move into our sermon. And if you have questions about that or the awakening that I was part of, um, you know, we can all talk about that. And, but it's been interesting to see this happening and, and to know that I'll just say that when something like that happens, kind of go back to the parable of the soils. Y'all remember some of the soil found, fell on the, some of the seed fell on rocky or the path, which the soil had been packed down the path. Then what was the other one? Rocks, and the other one is choked out by the weeds. And then the other three soils were thirty, sixty, and a hundred. So you have half the soils are bad, and half the soils were good, yielding thirty, sixty, hundred crop. And so I'd say in something like that, maybe that's a good rule of thumb. Maybe about half of it is falling on good soil and half of it's not. And so are there going to be people that are showing up at that revival with poor motives? Are there people there that are exploiting it for their own glory? Yes. But then don't question that God can move in an extraordinary way. Because He can. And He can move in, in someone's heart and not be moving in the person's heart right next to Him. And that's His prerogative. God can move wherever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants. Our text this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll look at the first six verses. If you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 6. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in front of you. So we'll just do six verses. Let me read these verses because I want to teach you something about how we read the Bible. So imagine right now, I'm going to read you this passage, and I want you just to think in your mind, if someone had me read these six verses, what would they say it's about? Okay. Verse 1, chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So what is this passage about? Certain verses here jump out to us. Certain verses are verses we've heard quoted many times. And we're tempted to say, this is a passage about spiritual warfare. And we need to get out there and fight. And certainly that would be one of the applications we'll talk about. But that's not what this passage is about if you're reading it in the context of the letter. This passage is a warning. It's a warning to those who oppose the authority of God. This is a message to those who are disobeying Christ that they might avoid the judgment that comes when you side with the enemies of God. I can remember being in court with a client for a family law case. 
And I guess it was a, a custody case with children involved and a, a pair of parents who were divorced were arguing uh, over the, who should have custody of the children. And the mother and father were very hateful towards each other. They couldn't get along. They couldn't come to an agreement. And we needed some time to have a hearing. And so at the beginning when the docket was called, we, the opposing attorney and I told the judge, we're going to need some time either later this morning or this afternoon for a hearing. And the judge said, where are your clients? We said, they're back here. And so he called them up to the bench. And he said something like this. I don't, this isn't verbatim, but here's what he, something like this he said. He said to the, to, the former, to the mom and dad, he said, if you want to sit here and have a hearing, I'll sit here and let you have a hearing. And you can sit in here and say all these things, these embarrassing things about each other. You can air out all your dirty laundry in front of all these strangers in here, and I will let you do that because it's your right. But let me tell you that when I make a ruling in this case, most likely both of you are going to walk out of here very unhappy with my decisions. So why don't you go back there and talk with your lawyers about what you want to do next? And of course, we went back there and settled the case. Or maybe bring it closer to home here. How many of you recall the days of driving in the car when you were little bitty going on vacation? And you were in the back seat. And the, I don't know if you all remember this, but sitting in the back seat with your siblings, the territory was very clearly defined. Do you all remember that? And you had to do what? Stay on your side. <laughs> do not get over here into my side. Do not cross the line. And so when there's a line, what do you do? You cross it. And you go over on their side, and you annoy them, and you punch, and you hit, and you tell on each other, and your behavior is terrible. And you're back there screaming and crying and making noise until you get a warning from the authority sitting in the front seat when mom or dad turns back around and says, don't make me what? Don't make me stop this car. Don't make me pull over or you're going to regret it, immediately you begin to act reasonable. If you were smart, you found out a way to get along back there. Some of y'all, they had to pull the car over, I know. But that's what's happening in this passage. In a sense, Paul is telling the Corinthians here, don't make me stop this car. Don't make, you, don't make me show you the authority that I have as an apostle because you continue to rebel against God. You don't want what's coming. I saw the football player, Shannon Sharp, and I can't remember who the basketball player was that, you know, Shannon Sharp is a big old football player. I think he played for the Packers. Is that right? Broncos. That's right. Broncos. I can't remember. I don't know. Was there a Shannon that played for the Packers? I don't know. Uh, it wasn't a cowboy. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, Shannon Sharp, he, he's on TV with Skip Bayless, and they were... He was at a game. I think, does anybody remember what it was? Was it a Lakers game or something? Who remembers? None of y'all saw this. Okay, so Shannon Sharp's on the bench and gets in an argument with the player and his dad. And they're going to get in a fight. And this guy, he's still enormous. He said, trust me, you don't want any of this. <laughs> you, don't want, you don't want any of this. He was saying, you don't want to pick a fight with me. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. And we don't have time to dive into all the uh, doctrine of the apostles' authority, but basically we understand that there were 12 disciples 
uh, who were sent. Now, we know that Judas uh, committed suicide, and uh, apostle was chosen to take his place. And then there were other, uh, we know that there were 12 that were sent that became his apostles, perhaps a few more that were considered to have the authority in the early church because they had seen the resurrected Christ. Paul was one of those, even though he saw the resurrected Christ later on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But these apostles were sent with the authority. They were sent with the keys to the kingdom. They were sent with authority to bind and loose. These were the men who wrote the very words of God to his church. We have their teachings. They were written down by the apostles themselves or those closely associated with the apostles, like Luke. And these words of the apostles, their authority in writing is preserved for us in Scripture. So to reject an apostle, Jesus said, was the same thing as to reject him. Because the apostles were the authority in the early church. There's no more apostles. Why are there no more apostles? Nobody's seen the resurrected Christ. Okay? Nobody that's living right now can add to the back of the Bible. And so if someone tells you they're an apostle, so it's the time the Bible, say, what are you going to add to it? You have the authority if you're an apostle. They say, well, I'm not that kind of apostle. You're not an apostle. Okay? Now, they use the word in a different way in some churches, just that idea of someone being sent, maybe someone that plants churches. But the actual apostles, when we talk about apostolic authority in the early church, it resided in just a few men. Okay? And Paul was one of them. Paul had gone to Corinth. He stayed there for two years. He led all these people to Christ. He discipled them, but when he left, other teachers came in who said, We're, he may be an apostle, but, but Paul, uh, they, they said, but we have more authority. Paul called them super apostles when he was talking about them in a derogative way. But these other teachers came into the midst of the, of the church there in Corinth and they were causing them to doubt the resurrection from the dead. They were doubting one of the core tenets of Paul's teaching about the gospel, the resurrection. One of the core tenets of all Christianity is the resurrection. If you don't have Christianity, uh, resurrection, you don't have Christianity. And they were causing them to question the resurrection. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes the longest chapter we have in the New Testament, 58 verses about one thing, the resurrection. They were accusing Paul of not handling money well. They had divisions in the church. They were following all sorts of different people. There were problems in that church. They were confused. They began to approve of sexual immorality. There was a man who was living with his father's wife. They were filing lawsuits against one another. They were acting selfishly in worship. They were abusing spiritual gifts, and they were even defiling the Lord's Supper. And Paul was writing them letters. We, some people say there's many as eight letters that were written to the Corinthians. We know of four. We have preserved two of them. But he was writing them letters, and he was pleading with them, you guys need to repent. And the false and yet eloquent teachers would say, oh, Paul, when he writes you letters, he's so bold, isn't he? But he's weak when he's with you. They would say that maybe about somebody that's a keyboard warrior. You know, somebody that's in the basement typing all these harsh words. When you meet them, they're meek in person. That's how they were speaking of Paul. So Paul had come to them to rebuke them, and he called that his painful visit. And after the painful visit, he left. Apparently, there was no traction made, 
And he wrote them, when he got back to Macedonia, he wrote a tearful letter. This was after 1 Corinthians. He had visited them, written this tearful letter, and he sent Titus with the tearful letter that expressed his great sorrow over the way things were going in their relationship between Paul and the church. And when they read it, and when they received the ministry of Titus, they repented. And this letter really is a response to Paul hearing the good news that they had changed their hearts toward him. They had submitted to Paul's authority, but not everybody. There was still that little group of grumblers, that little group of malcontents who were questioning Paul's authority. And when we think of chapter 10 of this letter that we began in the first chapter, now we're toward the end of, 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 the, of the letter, there's only three chapters left, and Kent Hughes, a famous preacher, he says in chapter 10, he said this letter shifts and it takes an ominous tone as Paul begins to address these remaining rebels who are not repentant in this con congregation, who are still rejecting the authority of God. So now that you know all that, this passage will make sense. Look at verse 6 quickly. We'll make application as we go along. We can say this passage, these six verses, are broken down into two sections. Verses 1 and 2, we'll say, contain Paul's plea, Paul's request. Paul's plea in verses 1 and 2 lead to him discussing in verses 3 through 6 God's punishment. So we have Paul's plea and God's punishment. First, Paul's plea. Verse 1 and 2, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. That was the criticism. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show you boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So now that those two verses make sense to you, right? He's saying, don't make me pull over the car. I'm begging of you. Don't make me come and show this boldness with such confidence as I'm counting on having to do right now with these remaining unrepentant members of your church. But he does this first noting the character of Christ. He says, I'm appealing to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty nine. he says, come to me, for I'm lowly, I'm gentle in heart, I'm meek in spirit. Paul says, basically what he's saying is, Jesus was meek and gentle, I'm humble when I'm with you. I'm acting like Jesus when I'm with you. And your false teachers are criticizing me for acting like Jesus. Who do you all think is right here? And it's a reminder to us that the world is always going to look at us. If we begin to act with true Christ-likeness, they are going to be critical. There will even be some with worldly hearts and worldly minds in the church where if you begin to act Christ-like, you will be criticized. And that's a, sad, that's a sad thing to think of Christ-likeness as a weakness because Christ is the king of the universe. But he tells us his heart is gentle and lowly. But yes, this gentle and lowly Jesus could come with power. He could cast out a demon. He could turn over tables. He could oppose the Pharisees to their face and call them out. He would tell Peter to get behind him and call him Satan. Meek and gentle doesn't mean weak, it just means your power is under control. It may appear weak, but it's not weak. 
And Paul is begging them, look, you don't want to see my boldness. So he appeals to them. He says, do whatever it takes to make things right so that you are not rebelling against God's authority that's been bestowed upon me. So I don't have to come as I'm planning on doing right now and putting those false teachers and their followers out of the church. God's punishment in verses 3 through 6. He explains if he has to come in confidence, it's going to be like a battle. He's telling those who are on the wrong side of God's authority, get ready to be destroyed. And he uses battle language, as Paul is known to do, all through these three uh, three verses. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. Think about taking a a soldier's prisoner, taking them captive and making them obey the other side, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So verse 3, Paul says, look, we're not special. He says, we walk according to the flesh, He's not talking about sin there. He's just saying we're natural men. But we're waging war in a different way. Your false teachers are all flesh. But we're waging war in the Spirit. And there's going to be a war coming. I'll stop this car. And in verse 4, he says, I'll get out these weapons that are not like human weapons. You see, all those false false teachers had was talent. You ever seen... Uh, a person, maybe they're selling uh, uh, self-help books or you see them on TV and they are very eloquent and they are, are flashy and they're confident and they can just, get, it seems like they can just get people to hand them money, hand over fist. And then where does that book or where does that teaching and all that wind up on the shelf because it really doesn't have any power. All those teachers had was talent. They were able to speak eloquently They were flashy, maybe even in the way they presented themselves. But Paul says, look, we don't look impressive, but the weapons we have have divine power. We don't have Greek philosophy. We have the power of God. And these weapons with divine power, he says, can destroy strongholds. Like a way a city would be fortified as a stronghold. Paul says, our weapons destroy such. This is for sure language of spiritual warfare that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, Ephesians chapter 6. It is a theme of the Christian life, as we'll kind of take an aside here for just a minute. It's a theme of the Christian life that we must have, as Paul has here, a wartime mentality. Melissa was telling me the other day about this. uh, She's on Facebook. You know, they have the groups that you can be a part of where you see posts to the group. This is a Christian wives group. And, uh, I know uh, some of, some of y'all look at the Christian wives group uh, for entertainment, uh, but in this group, there was a woman who was upset that she was about to go on vacation with her husband, and she was upset and felt like she needed to get on here and tell all these women that her husband wasn't letting her get her nails done before she was going on a vacation, and she was really upset. Maybe she was asking uh, what she should do. And a bunch of the, the women on there said, well, don't listen to him. Just go get your nails done with your fun money because she has fun money. 
But that's just one example of the silly things that Christians get wrapped up in that makes us seem like we're not serious people. And I don't know that lady, and Melissa just told me that, that story, but I was thinking of that story in terms of this passage where we are told uh, that we are soldiers, that we're to fight a good fight, that we're waging a war here, that Christians should realize that there's a real enemy out there that's trying to steal, kill, and destroy us. And are we sitting around worrying about getting our nails done with our fun money or not? I mean, imagine if you went to the front lines. I may really get in trouble for this story. You know, I maybe didn't think this through. Uh, <laughs> go get your nails done if you need to. I just want to say that. Uh, but can you imagine, just don't make an issue out of it, but can you imagine going to the front line there in Ukraine where they're fighting Russia and talking about getting your nails done? You know, when you have an actual wartime mentality, you think they're thinking about their nails right now? No, they're not thinking about their nails right now. Because you have a different mentality whenever you're on heightened alert. And we should realize that we're in a spiritual battle. In verse 5, he says, These spiritual weapons are able to destroy arguments and lofty opinions that serve as a barrier against people knowing God, that, that set themselves up, he says, against the knowledge of God. The imagery there in verse 5 is, is if we can think back to that time, uh, it's, it's speaking of ancient warfare when people who would defend a city would have towers. So you would come up against a city and there would be people that would be up on the tower with the bows and arrows or pouring hot oil or hot water or whatever it is, they would be harassing those who were coming up to uh, uh, take the city. And so Paul's saying in verse 5, if you, if you look at 5, he says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. He's saying, you may be up there on the tower shooting arrows at us, and those are your opinions and your arguments, but the weapons that we have destroy those high places. He says, we destroy arguments and lofty opinions. You're not going to harass us with those. We'll take those down and take those people who are shooting the arrows at us captive to the obedience of Christ. He's saying, basically, we destroy those who would presume and who would promote wrong thinking and wrong knowledge about God. Paul says, you've got liars in your church. And we're going to destroy those lies. And we're going to take those wrong thinkers captive and make them see the truth. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, Paul is telling the unrepentant in the Corinthian church that God is going to destroy the way they think. And when I think of the way I think many times, I would like for God to come in and destroy that. Make it right. And then he concludes in verse 6. He says, I'm coming to punish the disobedience. I'm coming to take care uh, of the, of the, of the, the lack of, of reverence here. I'm coming to take care of those who are unrepentant. But I'm not going to do this until your obedience is complete. He's basically saying to the Corinthians, once those of you on God's side have made up your minds not to tolerate these false teachers and these grumblers and these accusers, when you're ready to drop them 
when you've completed your obedience in getting these people out of your life and, 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 and when they're not causing problems in the church, when y'all have decided that, that you see what the problem I see, then I'm going to come in and they will be punished. They will be put out. So Paul is describing a battle. He's describing a type of spiritual warfare here, but he's describing a type of battle he doesn't want to have to fight. He doesn't want to see a battle because he wants them to repent. He wants the church to be brought to a point of unity, but he fears there's going to be a war. And he fears that he's going to have to use these weapons that have divine power, weapons that destroy lies and opinions of everyone who is opposing Christ. And he knows there'll be captives, and he knows there'll be punishment, and war is ugly, and he doesn't want it to be that way. So I think in, in, in many times when we approach these verses, we might look at this passage and we might say, well, I've got these weapons, and I'm going to be a radical, romping, devil-stomping, Bible-talking, faith-walking warrior. And I'm going to get out there and I'm going to go take names and take captives and deal out the punishment and I'm going to stomp the devil and all this stuff. But that's not the emphasis of the passage, is it? That's not what these verses are about. This passage is a warning to those who oppose the authority of God. This is a message to those who are disobeying Christ that they might avoid judgment the kind of judgment that comes when you side against God. If you're an unbeliever here today, you are in sinful rebellion against God. You don't want His judgment and His punishment. You need to surrender and trust Christ as your Lord. And for the believer, you confess Jesus as Lord. But are there places in your life where you're opposing God's authority. Think about your life. Think about your heart. Think about the parts of you that nobody else sees. Where are you not listening? Where are you living as though you are wiser than the wisdom of God? Where are you disobedient? Where do you need to repent and make things right? Because there will not always be a time to make things right. Paul says when the, when the Corinthians have become obedient, that's the time when he's going to come in and punish. And let me tell you, God has a time marked out where the trumpet is going to sound and there will be no more time to get things right. The time you have to get things right now is a gift from God. The fact that you're sitting in a church hearing the word of God, admonishing you and warning you to examine your heart and see the places where there needs to be change real change that's lasting, that itself is a gift from God. Judgment will come to the unrepentant. Discipline will even come to the unrepentant believer. So this passage urges us to humble ourselves before the authority of God. And I'll say to me, in my heart, and say to you, let's not make God stop the car. <laughs> 